This is the story of John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist had to be called John the Baptist. Uh, because if it had been uh, the story of John the Methodist, we most assuredly in the next few verses would have heard uh, something very different. You know, a Methodist preacher crying out, repent, and calling his congregants a brood of vipers would definitely cause an SPPRC meeting and, and a discussion about his coming move in June, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course we know that, that John the Baptist was not Baptist. He was Pentecostal, right? No. That's, okay, good. Hey, I like it. That's good. Help me out every bit you can. <laughs> uh, there were no denominations back then. You know, they called him a Baptist because he baptized. Uh, he was John the Baptist. And so we're starting with the story this morning in a, in a time that is rich in tradition. Um, so this is the second Sunday of Advent. And I have to admit that growing up, I really didn't get the Advent thing. I, I really didn't. I grew up in the Methodist church, and we did Advent every year, but I don't really think I got it. It's kind of like uh, the discussion that was going on the, in the civics class where they were discussing the qualifications for becoming the president of the United States. The requirements are pretty simple. The candidate must be a natural born citizen and at least 35 years old. A woman in the class got very angry. She piped up and began complaining about how, fair, how unfair it was to require the candidate to be a naturally born citizen. In her opinion, that made it impossible for many qualified people to run for the office. She went on and on and on and she wrapped up her argument with, what makes a natural born citizen more qualified to be president than one that's born from Caesarean session? Uh, Caesarean section. <laughs> she didn't get it. And I just about didn't there in that joke either, did I? <laughs> yeah, so Advent, what does it mean? It means coming. And the word is a description that we uh, use to celebrate this time of year in the church. But it begs explanation, doesn't it? What are we expecting and what's up with the candles? You know, we lit the peace candle last week. We light the hope candle this week. And next week we'll light the joy candle and then the love candle and then the Christ candle. And all of those candles are a representation of the things that we receive as Christ comes into our lives at Christmas. But the truth of the matter is, as Christians... We say we have these, but so many times we take things for granted, almost to the point that we lose the enjoyment of them. A little poem, when I was a child and Christmas time was near, I wanted a red wagon, so I bent my parents' ear. Crisp joy and anticipation consumed my very being, the thought, the hope, the wonder that it might be appearing. And when it did, oh, exaltation, fulfillment of my expectation, and in a week, Though it was mine, it no longer seemed quite so divine. Sometimes as Christians, when we're not interacting with Christ daily, the new wears off. Sometimes we need to tune up our hopers. So Advent's a time of remembering, remembering the longing, the expectation, the joy of fulfillment, and looking forward to the life that we have ahead in Christ. I love to tell the story. And, and, and for, for a pastor, you know, this time of year comes around every year, and we preach the same passages year after year after year. And you would think they would get old, but I'm going to tell you, I love to tell the story. The, the, the old hymn says, will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And I'm going to tell you, the, the more you study the story and the more 
you see what all was put into it, the more wonderful it becomes and the more aware of God's love it becomes. There was a story about a couple. Uh, the man was, was off on an overnight business trip and he came back and it was his anniversary day and he brought his wife a flower. It was a beautiful flower. It was her favorite color. It was, everything about it was perfect and, and, and it was her anniversary and she was so blessed by it. It was so sweet. And she said, thank you, dear. And she took that flower and she pressed it in her Bible to be kept for the, you know, the ages. Well, years passed and her husband passes away. And, and she's walking down memory lane, as you do, you know, sometimes when you lo lose a loved one. And she ran across that flower. And, and, and not only did she run across that flower, she ran across the stub of, of an airplane ticket, of an airline ticket. And she began to get concerned. This airline ticket was, was during the time that they were married. And she began to ask around to some of her friends. And they go, yeah, we remember that. And she said, well, I, I don't know of any time that he took a flight uh, that I didn't know about. And they said, yeah, um, this is what happened. Just before your anniversary, he had saved and saved and saved for months. And he bought a, a ticket to Europe where he scoured the country looking for flower gardens. And then he walked through each one of them and found the perfect flower. He handpicked it and he got on a plane and nurtured it all the way back home. And it was the flower that she had pressed in her Bible. Sometimes we get to understand how precious the gift is by knowing the details of the story. That flower was beautiful to her at first. She loved it. It was sweet. But when she knew the lengths that he had gone, when she knew the, the thought that he had put into it and the effort that it took and what was supposed to be an overnight business trip to, to the town next door ended up being a a trek to bless his wife. So the story and the details of the story are important. And I'm going to talk this morning about some details. And I hope it doesn't get too dry. But, but, but I just want, to, I want you to listen in the details for some meaning. We're in this series of, of Advent. And, and we're in the week of hope. And part of Advent is pretending like we don't have what we're going to have when Jesus comes. I want to ask you this morning, do you remember a time when you didn't have hope? Where things were hopeless? Maybe you don't have to remember. Maybe it's right now. I, I, I pray that as we continue to read the story that you not only gain hope, but I pray that you see that God loves you very much. And how much he put in to writing this story. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Well, what days were that? What days were those? They were days of the Roman occupation. It was days of temple worship when people would have to travel on foot or on a donkey for miles and miles and miles to come to the temple in Jerusalem to get their sins atoned for. It was a time where there had not been a prophet in the land 
for more than 400 years. Could you imagine the hopelessness? You're subject under foreign rule and under a system of relationship with God that was oppressive and no one was hearing from God and no one was sharing God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came. Well, who was John the Baptist? John the Baptist was, was the son of Elizabeth and Zacharias. He was Jesus' second cousin. He was a, uh, a PK. You know what a PK is? In today's terminology, that would be a preacher's kid. But, but in those days, it was a priest's kid. Now, you know, if you're a preacher's kid, you grow up in the church and, and you're drugged to, to church every Sunday. But, but there's not a guarantee that you're going to be a preacher. Maybe, but no guarantee. But in those days, John the Baptist was a Levite. His dad was Zacharias, a priest in the temple. And so, so it was assumed that John the Baptist would be a priest in the temple of God in Jerusalem. The Bible says he was full of the Holy Spirit in the womb. And in Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says that there was none born of woman greater than him. He was a Nazarite, which means he had taken a vow to God to live in, in certain relationship in a certain way that honored God. And he wore the uniform of a prophet. He wore a uniform, yes, and I'll tell you how I got that. He wore a uniform uh, based on, on 2 Kings 1.8. This is the Old Testament. They replied he had the garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. And the king said that was Elijah the Tishbite. The quintessential prophet of the Old Testament. Elijah, the one that everybody knows. Right? He wore a garment of, of hair and he wore a belt of leather. And in Matthew 3, John's clothes were made of a camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. It's no wonder that when people saw him and when they heard him preach, they asked, are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. So in they, those days, John the Baptist came and he came preaching in the wilderness of, of Judea. Now, this is one of those little bits of scripture that when I read scripture just, you know, as, as leisure, it doesn't really jump out at me, but, but I love when you begin to press the story and you begin to look at it, it begins to really unveil the love of God. In the wilderness of Judea, scholars place this location near where the Jordan empties into the Dead Sea. It just so happens that this is the lowest place on earth. And it's near where the children of Israel entered into the promised land. So I'll set the stage here. Hang in there with me. I know there's a lot of facts that I've, I've just put out. But I want you to see that it was a bad time in history at the lowest place on earth. And God uses a PK, a priest kid, who didn't know how to dress. And he preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Now that, that is, I mean, I don't know why we don't hear that in churches more often. Because that was... John the Baptist's sermon, and that was also Jesus' first sermon, repent, the kingdom of God is near. But I'm afraid that these days the word repent has this kind of negative connotation. Whenever you hear the word uh, repent these days, you think about the street preacher that, that usually yells repent, and then after that there's a whole lot of condemning things that come after that, and, and it's just kind of off-putting. It reminds me of a story about a, a priest and a preacher that were standing beside the road and, and they had these signs and it said, repent, turn yourself around now before it's too late. 
They had planned to hold up the sign by each passing car, and one car passed by and he yelled out, Leave us alone, you religious nuts. And he sped off. And about that time, they heard a big splash. And the preacher turned to the priest and said, Do you think we should have just written bridge out? (laughs) We get caught up in the terminology. And we miss the meaning. The meaning of the word repent uh, in the Greek, it's it's metaneo. And it, it simply means to change your mind. Change your mind. Consider that there's a better way. Consider that the way you're doing things is not exactly the best way. That there's something different. There's something better. There's a, there's, there's a different way that would behoove you to follow. Repent. Change your mind. And, and this was, the, this was the, the, what was being preached here. And the funny thing was is it was a simple little message. But people were coming. People were coming from all over. And in, um, in verse 5, it says, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, listen, I have read that verse all my life, and it has not really done anything for me. But I will tell you this here. I see something different. If they just said that people left Judea to go get baptized, that would have been one thing. If they had just said, if, if the Bible had just said uh, people were coming from all around to get baptized, that would have been another thing. But the Bible says people were coming from Jerusalem to get baptized. Do you understand the significance of that? Jerusalem was the place where the temple was. The temple was the place where the Holies of Holies was. The Holies of Holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant was the place where the Bema Seat was. The Bema Seat was where the presence of God was. And you did not have a relationship with God anywhere else on the planet except there. And here people were leaving Jerusalem and going to connect with God in the desert. It was heresy, all-out heresy. Can you imagine the preacher of the church? You know that he's been preaching for years, and he said this is the place where you can experience God. And people go off in a field somewhere and hear a field preacher, and they connect with God. Actually, that's the story of Methodism, isn't it? It really is. But that's also this story. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming where he was baptized, and he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So what happened was the people that were in charge of the temple said, This can't be, this is heresy, and they went out to engage him. And John the Baptist was basically saying, God's doing a new thing. We are no longer going to need a middleman. It's been God's desire all along to walk with us daily in the desert, even, even in the lowest place. Do you see the detail? God wants to walk with you in the desert. If you don't believe me, look back in the Old Testament and you can see the tabernacle. They carried the Ark of the Covenant with them as they went. It was a a type and shadow of what Jesus wanted, what God wanted in our lives. God's busting out of the box. God's saying, "I I won't be in the temple alone anymore. 
I want out. The kingdom is near. It goes on to say, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. God's ending Jewish, the Jewish temple is the only place for relationship. Now listen, we're not Jewish. I know that. So this might not have any meaning, but we are Southern. Our grandmothers went to church. Our mamas went to church. Some of us had a drug problem. We were drugged to church every Sunday. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, uh, that was the kind of drug problem we had. Uh, we were drugged to church every Sunday. I mean, that was the place that you went to experience God. And, and there is this, this culture that grows up in the South that says church is where you experience God. And so we come on Sunday morning and we give God that one hour and we check it off. What about the 167 other hours in the week? We're not Jewish, but is God still in a box in South Georgia? Is God still in a box in Statesboro? I want to tell you that, that the whole crux of this story is that there's something new coming. There's something new coming, and that is that, that God is not going to stay in the box. God doesn't want to stay in the box. He doesn't want to be a, somebody that you come and visit on weekends. He wants to be with you in the desert and in the lowest places. It goes on to say in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So God not only wants out of the box, he wants into your life. He wants to be Emmanuel. Isn't that the whole story of Christmas? He wants to be Emmanuel. He wants to be God with you. Not the God that you encounter just at church. He wants to come and baptize you in his presence. Even at your lowest point. So it comes to this. This Advent, will you repent? Will you change your mind? Maybe God's not just someone to visit at church. Maybe God's the God of Monday. Maybe God's the God of Tuesday. Maybe God's the God of Wednesday and Thursday and even Friday night. Will you let God out of the box? Will you let God invade your life? Now the prophet, John, was a voice of the one calling in the wilderness. And he said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. This Advent, will you repent and make room for Jesus in your life? And when you do... I, I pray that it brings you the hope that we talk about during this season. And I pray that in that place that is the lowest place of your life or in that place that seems like a desert or maybe in, even in the joyous times, I pray that you don't have to go through it by yourself. 
that you know that God's heart toward you is to be with you 24-7 because he loves you, because he cares for you. The whole point of Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. There's no point that, that, that drives it home better. The intent of God's heart than the tradition we call communion. What do you do when you commune with somebody? You be with them. You are with them. And so this morning as we come to take part in this tradition, I just invite you to let God get out the box. I just invite you to ask him to to baptize you in his presence, not just on Sunday, but every other day. I pray that this Christmas is not about all the cares and the worries and the fears, but I pray that you see the heart of God, that just like the flower that the man brought back for his wife, God has written a love story to you down through the ages. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son.